Hope you'll take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 7. I'll only say that for one more week, I think. As you turn there, I'm going to jump right in and tell you some things on the front end. First, I want to tell you that this morning we are going to hear some things from Jesus that may be hard to think about. We're going to hear some things that may make us uncomfortable. Here's what I mean. In this passage, Jesus tells us that there are some people who who know who he is, who know the things that he's done, people who are able to quote scripture, maybe better than you or I, and yet they are not truly the people of God. There are people who may be able to recite the historic creeds that we, we read, sing the songs of faith from memory. They could be faithful church members, even seemingly faithful pastors. And yet, they may not be part of the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus says in this part of Matthew 7, that there is those who one day will stand before God, assuming that they are in right standing with him, and yet be told that they are not welcomed into his kingdom. Words that are hard to hear, perhaps. It's hard to consider that there may be those who have the appearance of being part of the people of God, and yet are not. I just wanted to say that on the front end. Couldn't come up with any other great introduction except to say, This is a hard truth. But I also want to say this. We should rejoice and be thankful that Christ has given us this passage. What we have here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's a loving warning from our Lord. He's giving us the chance, friends, to examine our hearts. He's helping us know the the nature of salvation and what it takes to truly be part of the kingdom of God. And so while it may create some discomfort to think about these things, we should be thankful that God has given us this truth. I was thinking as I prepared, I think this most every week, this probably won't be the best sermon I ever preach. No clever introduction so far. May not be memorable to most of us, but at the same time, This may be the most important sermon that you ever hear. Not because of me giving it, but because this is straight talk from Jesus, and it may be the warning that you need to hear that could lead you to truly see your need for him in a way that you never have before. With that said, I want you to hear the words from Christ. We're in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. We're going to read just a few verses down to 23. Hear the word of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus says, I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray that God will do his work in us through his word. All right, before we go any further, let's, let's just remember where we are. We're in this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a four-part conclusion, and we're in part three. Let me just remind you where we've been. In, in part one, we are told about two gates and two paths. There's a, a wide path, a path that's easy and that many follow, but it leads to destruction. But there's another path. It's a, a path that starts at a narrow gate, hard to find and few find it, but that is the path that leads to life. And so the call from Jesus in that first part of this four-part conclusion is, Enter by the narrow gate. Follow the narrow path. That was part one. Two gates, two paths. Then in the second part, he tells us about two trees and two kinds of fruit. In the second part of this conclusion, he's warning us that there will be those who are going to teach things that may lead us to the wrong gate. There may be those who would suggest that the wide path is the right path or that the narrow path is too hard or too difficult. So the call from Christ in the second part of the conclusion is watch out for false prophets. Watch out for those who would lead you away from the way to salvation. To use the imagery that Christ uses, he says, watch out for wolves that look like sheep. So the question we asked last week is, how do we know the wolves from the sheep? And Jesus tells us, Watch their fruit. That great metaphor change right there in the middle. He tells us about two trees. A good tree and diseased trees. And you'll recognize the good tree from the bad tree by the fruit. So just to recap, two gates, one narrow and one wide. Two ways, one easy and one difficult. Two destinations, destruction and life. Two groups, the many and the few. Two kinds of trees with two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. And this morning, we have two kinds of people who make two different kinds of professions of faith. There's a profession that's genuine that leads to eternal life. And there's a false profession that does not lead to life, but leads to death. But here's the real difficulty. Because I think if we just stop there, we're not learned any, we've not learned anything new than we did in the first part of the conclusion. There's two paths. We know there's a group headed towards destruction, and we know there's a, a group headed towards life. The new information we get here is that there are those who assume they're on the right path, but their profession isn't genuine. Look at verse 21 again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So just get the situation in your mind. And I've already admitted it could be unsettling. Jesus is telling us that there are people who address him as Lord, who seem to know who he is and even recognize him as divine. But obviously there's something missing because... Although they recognize him and cry out to him, he says that they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. 
As we get into verse 22, he describes the scene. And I just want to encourage you, use a little bit of your imagination. He's describing the, the final judgment. He says, on that day, many, it's a scary word. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? On that day, like I said, he's, he's describing this final day of judgment, a day that some people never think about. Some think about in passing, but it's very fictitious feeling. Even those of us who know and follow Christ closely probably don't think enough about this day. But it's a day that Jesus talks about quite a lot. You read through the Gospels. He points us towards it often. This day when God will judge every person and separate them into one or two groups. Those who are welcomed into everlasting life and joy and those who are sent into everlasting death and judgment. And it's a real day that's coming. And here's what Jesus says about that day. He says, there will be many who recognize him for who he is who have a resume of things that they've done in his name, but who will not be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And what's most chilling is the implication that they're surprised. They assume they'd be welcomed. And so the question that I hope is just, you know, you kind of raise my hand, why not? Right? What are they missing? They, they recognize Christ. They've done good works in his name. What is missing here? What is it about their profession or their religious activity that excludes them? I think it's clear. Jesus is not talking in these verses about atheists or agnostics. He's not talking about those who are opposed to religion. Most of us, as, as much as we, we mourn anyone going to eternal destruction, I think we can we're okay saying we recognize there are those who have chosen not to follow Christ. They're overt about that. And so we can, we know how to process that. But this seems different, doesn't it? There are those who say, I, I know you, Christ. I've acknowledged you. I've done things in your name. So what's going on? What Jesus is telling us here is that there are those who are self-deceived. Deceived into thinking that they truly know Christ when they don't. And I think in this passage we see two dangers that could lead to that kind of deception. The first one is this. It's the deception of an orthodox profession. And it's just my, part of my job as a pastor to write clever little lines like that. Um, and maybe it'll be memorable for you as it is for me, but let's unpack it. What, is it. what do I mean by the deception of an orthodox profession? What Jesus tells us is there are people who rightly identified him, which is to say they believe true things about him. They address him the way the people of God address him. Remember in the Old Testament, the name of God is, in Hebrew, is Yahweh, but the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, believe this was a name that was too holy to speak. And so instead of calling him Yahweh, they addressed him as Lord. People of God addressed God as Lord, and it's a title of honor. And that's what we see here, this 
these, these folks, these many, addressing Jesus as Lord, and not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. They're, they're orthodox, and they're, they're passionate. Which is to say, these are people who seem to have a right view of who Jesus is. And yet, what we see is that their assessment of who he is, their right assessment of who he is, isn't enough to save them. Say that again. Their right assessment of who Jesus is is not enough to save them. And I want to give you a second and think, okay, what passages does this seem, what's coming to mind? For me, when I said that and wrote it, I thought of Romans 10.9. Doesn't Paul say, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So, do we have a problem here? Think about John 3, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. These are important passages that tell us we are saved by believing in Christ as Lord. But I said, a right profession of Jesus is not enough. And the question is, do these things contradict? Let me say some things that I, I want to be clear about. Hear this. No one enters the kingdom of heaven without professing that Jesus is Lord. And anyone who truly confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved. So we hear in those two passages, Romans 10, John 3, no one enters the kingdom of God without professing that Jesus is Lord. And anyone who confesses truly that he is Lord will be saved. Let's be clear on those things because the scriptures are. But what we see in Matthew 7 is that it's possible to know who Jesus is and even address him as Lord with your mouth and not truly have a heart that has submitted to him as Lord. Maybe it helps to say it this way. We aren't saved by intellectually affirming who Jesus is. We are saved by affirming with our hearts a devotion to Christ. So there's a difference between saying he's Lord and crying out to him as the one to whom we're ready to submit. I'll say it again. We're not saved unless we confess Jesus as Lord. But that confession must flow from a heart of faith. I was helped thinking through this passage by um, a pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he said this, a man who does not say, Lord, Lord, shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, of course, the starting point with this whole question of salvation. No man is a Christian unless he says, Lord, Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Orthodoxy, in other words, is absolutely essential. But if you rely upon that alone, you may be damned. Strong words. 
but he's helping us to hear clearly what Jesus says. There are those who recognize Jesus for who he is and yet have not submitted to him in saving faith. The point is we're not simply saved by knowing who Jesus is. And I think this is what, part of what Jesus wants us to hear here. There are many who have no problem saying Jesus is God or even that he's Lord, but they've never given their hearts to him. And so while the things they say are true and may even lead others to faith, that alone is not enough to save. Think about what James says. Remember this, James says in James 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And if you've read the Gospels, you know this is true. We have examples of demons and spirits that that recognize Jesus rightly, and they seem to have good theology. In fact, I'm going to say this, I think it's true. The first person outside of God himself in the Gospel of Mark to confess Jesus rightly is a demon. It says Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Jesus is speaking in the synagogue. There's a man with an unclean spirit. He's demon-possessed. And he cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. A demon who has, up to this point, good theology. Orthodoxy is not enough. So the first thing we see is this deception of an orthodox profession. And and many, Jesus says, will reach that final day and have been self-deceived because they assumed they were right with God because they understood Jesus. Here's the second thing. The deception of religious activity. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So now we we push a little further and we see that not only do these people see Jesus rightly and confess him as Lord, but they're, they're doing things. And miraculous things in this case. Did you you hear that repetition? We prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. The stakes are being raised. Not only have they identified Jesus rightly, not not only do they have good orthodox theology, but they're, they're doing things. Which raises a whole set of questions. The biggest one being, Could it be that there are unbelievers who do miraculous things in the name of Jesus? Let's just go a little ways down this rabbit trail, not far. Some would suggest to this question, no, but Jesus allowed them to say this because it's a a good example of not being saved by religion. I would say that's incorrect. I think we have examples in Scripture of, of those who, who do things in the name of Christ, miraculous things even, who aren't truly his. And the most significant example is that of Judas. 
Think about this. Remember when Jesus sends out his disciples? Let me, I'll read for you. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He gets his disciples together. He grants them authority to cast out demons and to heal. He sends them out and they do that. And Judas is among them. And yet we know Judas was not a true disciple. So here's at least one example of Jesus doing miraculous things through someone who is not his. We also have this passage, Matthew 24, starting in verse 22. Jesus says, speaking of the last days, he says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So, another example of people doing signs and wonders in the name of Christ who are not actually his. That's as far as we're going to go down that trail this morning. But here's the main point. The point is that there are people who do incredible things in the name of Christ, but doing those things does not necessarily make them, it does not make them a child of God. And Jesus uses the most extreme example, and yet we see how this is true in lesser things as well. There are those who feed the hungry in the name of Christ and care for the sick in his name. There are those who sing and lead worship in the name of Christ. Those who teach Sunday school classes in his name. Even those who preach and pastor and stand behind a pulpit week in and week out. But none of that is an assurance that we're his. Feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, even preaching is not a confirmation of our salvation. On the day of judgment, many will stand before God and say, but I did this. And he will say to them, I never knew you. And so we see, isn't it, in verse 23, this response of Christ to those who had right assessment of Jesus and who did good things in his name, and yet he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's not the happiest sermon, is it? To think of Jesus saying to someone, I don't know you. Which doesn't mean that he doesn't recognize who they are. God, in the general sense, knows all of us and knows us intimately. But this word, to be known by him, it's, it's the word that's used in the Old Testament of intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's a term of personal knowledge. She's saying, you've called me Lord, you've done things in my name, but you're not mine. I don't know you. Think about the language of John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's a pretty big comparison, isn't it? Think about the Trinity. <laughs> So I know the Father, and the Father knows me, and in the same way, I know my own, and my own know me. 
little later, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch me out of my hand. It's clear he's making distinctions that there are those who are not part of his flock. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The scriptures make this distinction, this category of being known by the Lord, which is a sweet and precious reality, friends. If you are his, rejoice, find hope, find joy in knowing I am known by God. But what makes this statement so grievous is that there are some who don't have that assurance. And it gets worse. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. At this point, we have a reminder of the awful end for those who don't belong to the kingdom of God. He's talking about the day of judgment. On that day, those who don't know him will be sent to eternal punishment. That's what he means when he says, depart from me. But then did you notice what he calls them? He calls them workers of lawlessness, which gives us a better glimpse into the heart of this situation. Yes, these are people who rightly identified Christ. And yes, they are people who have impressive religious resumes. But they are also people whose lives are still characterized by a commitment to sin. They're presently, actively workers of lawlessness. For all they got right, this is what they missed. Repentance. I titled this message, Two Professions. Most of the passage is about those who made a wrong profession. But there are a couple of references to this other confession or profession. I wasn't sure which word to use, and I settled. He says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And you see how this is a contrast to workers of lawlessness? Those who do the will of my Father? Who are those who are welcomed into the kingdom of God? Jesus says here, it's those who do the will of my Father. Now, let's just, again, be clear. We are not saved by what we do. The scriptures tell us we are fully and solely saved based on the work that Christ has already done. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You are saved by grace and grace alone. It's the work of Christ that saves you. I wanted this morning to sing several songs so that you left singing in Christ alone, right? And not in me. And Jesus, thank you. All of our songs this morning are about the work of Christ. So let there be no confusion. But the scriptures also tell us, and right there in the context of Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So those who turn from sin and turn to Christ will be people of good works, will be people who do the will of the Father. And this is what Jesus means when he says, the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus says the same thing over and over and over throughout the Gospels. This is what it means to be his disciple. It begins with a confession that he is Lord. It's a confession that must reflect a heart of repentance and submission. And we come to Christ that way in repentance and faith. He makes us a people. He gives us his spirit and we are changed and we live lives of good works. Good fruit, going back to last week. We are not saved by works, but our faith will be shown through our works, which is the message of James. And Jesus says this repeatedly. Let me just run down a quick list here. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We hear this over and over from Christ, and it stands in stark contrast to what he says about those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven when he calls them workers of lawlessness. I'll share with you one other um, paragraph I was helped by this week, this one being from D.A. Carson. He says, It's true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it's equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably will result in obedience. And then he says this, I think in reference to Romans 6. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. This is what Jesus means when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This passage has taken us into the deep end of the pool, hasn't it? But I don't want to go so deep that we miss the plain teaching. What we have from Jesus here is a warning about self-deception. It's not enough to believe true things about Jesus. It's not enough to do good things in the name of Christ. Even some who have stood in pulpits like this and proclaimed Jesus may be among those who have never truly repented and believed. And to simply restate what Jesus says, there are those who on the last day will say, Lord, Lord, and present their seemingly impressive resume only to hear the words, I never knew you, depart from me. So here's the question we must ask. 
do we know him? And does he know us? And it goes beyond good theology, although I want you to have that. And it goes beyond good works. Salvation is the work of God that produces repentance and is demonstrated through a transformed life. Does this mean that we live perfectly? By no means. If you say that you have no sin, John says you lie. The truth is not in you. But our lives should produce fruit. So the scriptures call for us to examine our hearts. We've spent months now in the Sermon on the Mount, and I've told you over and over, this sermon is a picture of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's telling us what the works are, what the fruit is. And it starts at the beginning with this summary of the kind of work that's produced in those who are his. We call it the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where the sermon started, and I told you then, he's not telling us how to earn the kingdom, but he's telling us that all those who are part of the kingdom will have these things. Poor in spirit, merciful, peacemaking. We're not saved by what we do, but those who are his will have lives that reflect the change. What do we do with this? First, we all, every one of us must examine our hearts. Make sure that your hope isn't in your right thoughts of Christ, but in your full devotion to him, repentance and faith. Second, let's be clear with the gospel. God forbid we present the gospel in such a way that we tell someone, just believe this about Jesus without any talk of repentance or faith or discipleship, right? True faith is a faith that produces submission and that follows Christ as Lord, not in, not in word only. Next week, we're going to consider the final paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, this, the end of this epic four-part conclusion. In that final section, Jesus fills out even more what the life of faith looks like. And I wanted to end this morning by reading it for you, but not from Matthew 7, but from Luke chapter 6, because the way he ties together the third and fourth part in Luke, it's really compelling. He says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words does them. And I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug a deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house, and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation 
when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Next week, we'll consider this final part of Christ's conclusion. Let's pray together.